Good morning, and welcome to this time of worship at Houghton Wesleyan Church. Please stand and join me in the call to worship. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our Apostle and High Priest. For we do not have a High Priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Lord, we come to you today and acknowledge our need for you. May we feel your presence today as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Before you're seated, take a moment and share a word of greeting with others here in worship today. to introduce you to Jeannie Little. Uh, some of you may or may not know Jeannie, but she and her husband Don have been a part of the church for the last uh, six or so years. And um, they uh, have been involved in a variety of things. And But over the course of that time, uh, Jeannie has, has felt a, uh, a drawing to the uh, Ministry of Spiritual Direction. She went through uh, quite a bit of extensive training and is now a spiritual director. And she has uh, been working with people in this ministry for a little while, uh, but uh, has a desire to this ministry to come under the leadership of the church, and we're very happy to do that. And so we thought it would be a good idea for her to share this morning a little bit. We're going to pray for her. This is one of those ministries that uh, takes place behind the scenes. And yet, quite frankly, most of the things that God does in our lives take place behind the scenes. And so it is, it is one of those uh, one of those. Uh, ministries of the church that isn't necessarily uh, visible all the time, but very important. And so Jeannie's going to share uh, about spiritual direction, her life, and uh, and then we want to uh, invite those of you who would like to gather around her as we pray for her and uh, this ministry. Well, I'm grateful for this opportunity to share a little bit about spiritual direction with you, a ministry that has in many ways changed my life. Although I believe God was preparing me for this ministry, it wasn't until about six years ago that I even heard of spiritual direction. Almost immediately, I knew that I was to pursue training as a spiritual director. It fit me in so many ways. But in the lovely way that is so God, he led me to do training, thinking I was going to learn some techniques and information, when really his first plan was to draw me into a deeper love relationship with him, and also to heal and free me from things in my life that felt like they were just me. They had been a part of my life for so long. So this has been a large part of my own story the past six years. But what is spiritual direction? Let me start by telling you what it isn't. A spiritual director is not a counselor or a life coach or a prayer partner or an accountability partner. And it's not even very directive. Spiritual direction is a form of soul care. And I think of myself mostly as a companion on the journey. We're all on a journey with God. Whether we started knowing him personally when we were children or um, when we became older later in life, we're learning and growing and doing the best we can on this journey. Engaging scripture, praying, being part of a Christian community, trying to follow and serve God in the world. But at the same time, we are immersed in all our individual life experiences. 
being born into a particular family, being a student, being someone who works. I doubt I have to spend time convincing you that although we may have earnestly surrendered our life to God, and perhaps even done that many times, our life and our relationship with God can feel a bit like a tangled mess. The busyness of life, its stresses, challenges and decisions, added to the hurts and disappointments of life, can cause us sometimes to wonder, if we're honest, so where is God in all of this? Spiritual direction is based on the conviction that God can be found in all of our life experiences. In fact, he's waiting for us to notice that he's there. Just as Jesus stopped by the well and met a woman who had had many husbands and likely felt that her life was a mess, and he offered her water, living water, offered her really himself, so Jesus wants to come into our individual messy stories and say, I can meet you there. I can offer you water, too. In spiritual direction, I am honored when individuals share their stories with me. I give them a safe place to voice their confusion and struggles and help them notice where God might be. It's traditional to light a candle in a spiritual direction session, and that represents Christ's presence in our conversation. Sometimes getting the question or the struggle out, naming it, and holding it to the light of Christ's presence can be deeply healing. I don't, though, want to give the impression that spiritual direction is problem-centered, as perhaps counseling is. For me, spiritual direction functions as regular soul care, much like the other spiritual disciplines, such as meditation on scripture and prayer and silence. Having someone who regularly draws me to examine my life and ask, where is God in my life? helps me live my relationships and my life with God more reflectively, rather than feeling that life is a fast-moving train. Building trust with a spiritual director who listens, asks me questions, notices things I might not see, has helped me grow in what Scripture calls abiding in Christ. That sense that I am a deeply loved child of God. There's much more I could say about spiritual direction, but on a practical level, I typically meet with men or women once a week, once a month, not once a week, once a month. <laughs> that would be too much. Uh, though with students, I meet every two weeks. I find students live life a little more intensely. So if you're interested, I'd love to sit with you and hear your story. Thank you. I'm ask Jeannie to come and uh, kneel here at the altar rail. And if you would like to uh, be one of the, to be a part of gathering around her, uh, 
praying for her as we uh, as we support her. I invite you to come now. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your desire to shape us into your image. That you are continually wanting more for us. And that you provide us with so many ways of of connecting with you more deeply. We thank you for the ministry of spiritual direction. And particularly for Jeannie's uh, desire and uh, the calling you've placed on her and her response to that to be a, a part of this ministry, to be a spiritual director. Lord, we pray that you will continue your blessing upon her, that you will anoint her ears and her mind and her eyes and her hands and every part of her being, that as she meets with folks, that there is a sense of your presence there. Give her insight and wisdom into helping those who meet with her to sense you and to know your love and to be drawn closer to you. We pray, Father, that you will bless Jeannie's own journey and thank you for her sensitivity and her willingness to, to engage herself in this form of spiritual discipline. And I pray that you would help her to be a catalyst for us as well. Thank you for her willingness to, to serve And we pray that uh, she will sense your spirit at work as she serves. Let there be fruit that is only understood through your spirit in the ministry of spiritual direction that Jeannie directs. Thank you, Father, for your grace, for your goodness, for your presence, for your help. And we pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh, you were able to follow with the post, uh, prelude, we're going back to that text again. Let me just share a few words about the person who wrote the text of today's anthem. Several times he fled for his life and lost all his possessions more than once during a 30-year war. In addition, he battled ill health, so he was well-grounded in the school of affliction. He was the 17th century German pastor-poet Johann Hermann. His trials accompanied a deep personal devotion to the suffering Savior. The poem we sing today is spoken to Christ, a tender prayer. You may follow on the screen or on page 158 in our hymnal. So, this is a prayer, but one with such theological depth. Who caused Christ's passion and death on the cross? We did. It was our treason. Could we win our own salvation? No way. But God stepped in. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Such grace leads to what? Gratitude. There is no way we so undeserving can repay Jesus. 
But we can join our fellow pilgrim in a heartfelt cry of thanks and adoration for such unswerving love.
The Old Testament reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, verses 9 through 20. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for the singing of the Gloria Patri as the ushers come forward to receive our tithes and offerings. Each day you show your goodness to us in more ways than we can count, and we are thankful. Now in this spirit of thanksgiving, we give back to you. In Jesus' name, amen.
Please join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Let's pray together. Merciful Lord, you have told us that if we love you, then we are to do so with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. While knowing this command, we confess that instead of living in total surrender, we have resolved to give you just enough. We declare you are Lord with our mouths, but we do not affirm it with our lives. We follow the path of ease and comfort instead of choosing to live in faithful obedience. We hoard all that we can instead of trusting you for our daily bread. We seek vain recognition instead of bringing you glory. Forgive us, Lord, our thoughts, attitudes, and actions that have hindered us and other people from experiencing your great love. Through Christ. Amen. We're going to spend a few moments praying together, and as we do so, if you would like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you call us to pray, you have promised to hear our prayers, and even more, you've promised to answer our prayers in the way that you know is best. In this moment of silence, hear our prayers. Father, we pray your grace upon all who are struggling today with grief or illness, with pain or trouble. We pray for Sherry Reynolds and her family in their time of grief and sorrow, as well as other families who live with the reality of death and loss every day. We know that you are with them, with each of us. Comfort every need, every aching heart. Every burdened soul. We pray that you will heal all of our diseases through the grace and power of who you are. Give hope, courage, healing, and strength to Bob Jobert, Rich Reynolds, Calvin and Laurel Bucher, Warren Woolsey, Bill Getty, Phil Muker, Mike Raybuck, Jill Tyson, and Bruce Brenneman. Bev Rett to Micah Christensen to Linda Roth and Dick Gould to Crystal Blake and Emily Cricklard and others who, for whom we are concerned today. 
Father, we pray for the ministries of this church. And today we especially want to thank you for all the prayer groups that meet throughout the week. Thank you for the commitment to pray. And we ask that you would do marvelous things because we pray. Bless every group with a holy confidence in you. That as we pray, you hear and you answer. And Father, we pray for the churches around us. And we think particularly of St. Patrick's in Belfast and Father Dennis who leads them. Pour out your spirit upon this congregation. That they may be a beacon of light in our world of great darkness. And Father, we, we pray for the world beyond us. And we think of the Rodrigo's. In Sri Lanka, thank you for their leadership and their ministry. Continue to pour out your blessing, your wisdom, your grace upon them. Be with their son, Daniel, who is a student here at Houghton College. Being a long ways from home, we pray that you will comfort him and help him. Give him a great time here. We pray for our brothers and sisters throughout the world who face such tremendous opposition. We think about the church in northern Nigeria. More than 4,000 Christians killed last year. Almost 200 churches attacked. Father, we pray for protection, for strength, for courage, and for an ongoing witness of who you are in your grace and mercy and truth. Father, we continue to pray for the millions of refugees throughout the world and for everyone who's involved in helping them. Whatever the circumstances that may have precipitated their flight, whatever their religion, their race, their nationality, we know that you love them with an everlasting love and that you desire your people to be agents of hope and strength, a visible presence of your love. Bring an end to the threats that make leaving home a necessity. Father, give us grace to continue to trust you as we surrender to you. And we ask all of this through the mercy and grace of Christ who goes to the cross for us and who leaves us the model for prayer which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
The New Testament reading is from the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Following the scripture reading, children may be dismissed for children's church. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, 
in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
Dennis Kinlaw, one of my spiritual heroes, once said, Grace is a promise. It's not a payoff. I've been pondering that as for a while. Of, because I, I think that's one of our great human struggles. I think we live our lives trying to understand that. Both with our attitudes and our actions. That grace is a promise. It's something that God just gives to us as opposed to a payoff, something we earn. That we're good enough. That we are nice enough. That we're holy enough. That we're anything enough. The whole point of grace is that God gives it to us even though we don't deserve it. And that's what Paul is saying in chapter 5 of Romans that we talked about last week. Where he says, while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, in rebellion against God, hating God, rejecting God, betraying God. In the midst of all of that, God's response is that Christ goes to the cross and dies for us. And that is the foundation of our faith, that God in his grace and mercy comes to us and Christ dies for us. And the question we have in response to that is, what do we do about it? What what does it mean for us? And there are a lot of ways people go with it. When you get to the sixth chapter of Romans, you get a sense that the people in Rome, the Christians there are saying, since God is so gracious and so merciful, since he forgives us for anything, why do we worry about how we live? Just do whatever we want. Because God will forgive us. We can can sin and it doesn't matter because we know behind that sin, God's grace is there and he will forgive us. And Paul says, ah, you're missing the point. See, that assumes that sin is harmless. That assumes that we can sin and it has no, there are no consequences to it. But when we're honest, we all know it does. We all know sin has consequences. We've watched it mess with our own feelings about God and our ability to connect with God. We've watched it tear apart relationships. We've watched it mess with our reputation. And we live our lives trying to to figure out those things, to, to rebuild broken relationships and to rebuild our reputation and to reconnect our, our sensibilities with God and our, and our understanding of God. Why is that? Because sin is continually destroying us. And to say, well, it doesn't matter what I do because God will forgive me. It's true, God will forgive us. But there is damage. And the point of Christ coming and dying, the point of the grace, is not just to be forgiven. It is to be set free from the destructive power of sin. If all the, if the meaning of the cross is that Christ comes and forgives us, that's awesome. But it leaves us living our lives in mediocrity. In, in quite frankly, in a, in a certain level of despair and hopelessness. I think one of the reasons we wrestle with that is because we see salvation as primarily about going to heaven. And that is certainly a a big part of it. But quite frankly, salvation is primarily not about going to heaven, but about engaging in the life of Christ now while we live on earth. The point of Christ coming and dying is not just to give us an eternal existence. It is to transform our lives now so that we can live now in the grace and the power and the joy and the peace and the life of Christ. 
And so when we go into the world and we're telling people about Christ, it's not just about you can have eternal life, but it's you can have your life transformed now. You can be set free from the bondage and the chains of sin now. But I'm not sure we really realize how devastating sin is. And sometimes we have this mindset, I think, that giving up our sin is is losing. And Paul is trying to help us understand that giving up our sin is winning. When we give up our sin, we aren't moving to something less, we're moving to something more. It's hard for us, he talks about it as dying to sin. And when we think about death, it always feels like a loss. Because quite frankly, our when we encounter and deal with physical death on earth, people we love and care about die, it is a loss. Even in the best of circumstances, when that death means that they are no longer suffering and and that we know they're Christians and so they're going to, to be with Jesus, as much as we celebrate that, the truth of the matter is death is painful and death is a loss. Someone we loved is no longer with us and there's no, not, there's no other way to explain that. And so when we start talking about death to sin, we, we naturally think it is a death to something that we love and embrace that's good and we're losing it. And it is a struggle. But what are we really losing? I think we often quite frankly, are a lot like the Israelites in the wilderness. God brings them out of slavery, 400 years of grinding slavery in Egypt. And God, through Moses, brings them out of that miraculously. And here they are in the wilderness. And God is ready to bring them into the promised land. And what are they doing? They're grumbling because the food in the wilderness isn't as good as the food in Egypt. We read that and we think, how crazy can they be? And they say, we wish we were back in Egypt. Really? Seriously? Living in grinding slavery in Egypt. Okay, so you get to eat leeks and onions and a few other great vegetables, but it's grinding slavery as opposed to freedom in the wilderness. And yes, it's manna, not the most exciting food in the world, but you're free. And then we have to stop and think how many times maybe we've grumbled in the same way. We're a lot like the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and says, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, obey the commandments. And he says, I've done that. He said, all right, then here's what you need to do. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor and come follow me. And Luke tells us in chapter 18 that this young man goes away filled with sadness because he has a lot of stuff. And giving up his stuff feels like losing. Even though giving up his stuff means intimacy with his creator. And there are times in our lives, in our struggles, that we are so enamored with our stuff, whether it's possessions or it's, it's something that you know, we feel, feel, makes us feel comfortable, that makes us feel secure, something that we, brings us pleasure, whatever the case may be, this stuff, we want to hang on to it because we think it is so great and losing it would be so terrible, not realizing that letting go of it 
gives us freedom to really know the peace and the joy and the blessing of God in our life, what we were created to experience. And quite frankly, if we're honest, deep down inside, it's what we really want. But we have a hard time letting it go. Hard time seeing life different than what it is. It reminds me of the stories you read about people who have spent so long in prison that when they're released, they don't know how to live. And they commit a crime to go back to prison because for them, prison is comfortable. And we think, wow, that seems crazy. And then we remember our own journey. It's hard to let go. But we're not dying to something good in order to go to something bad. We're dying to things that have the potential to destroy us. To Christ who wants to set us free. And often these things we're letting go of, they're not bad things. They're just more important to us than Jesus is. And he says, I want to fill you with so much more than that temporal kind of enjoyment and pleasure and security that these things can give you. I want to give you something deeper. I want to set you free. Like in Isaiah 44. You know, what are the Israelites doing? Isaiah says, you know, the guy goes out in the woods, cuts down a tree. He cuts it in half and he chops up half of it for kindling so that he can stay warm and cook his meals. And the other half, he shapes into an idol, sets it up in his house and says, this is the God who rescues me. Really? That's that's the God that you're going to worship? This is the God that you think is so awesome. And here I am. I've created you. I've sustained you. I've blessed you. I've done all of these things for you. What has this block of wood done for you? We get so enamored with the block of wood, it's hard to see God in the midst of it. What we don't realize is that these things, the sins of of our lives, our struggles, we're chained to them. We think... We think they're chained to us. We think we're in control and we can just drag the, these things around whenever we want, wherever we want to, when we want to. But the truth is we're chained to them. They're dragging us around. And you know that's true because think of the last time when you regretted something you said or something you did. And you, when, the, when the dust has settled and you think, oh man, I can't believe I did that. Why do we feel that sense of regret? Why did we get into it in the first place? Because we're chained to this thing. Because it has control over us. It has a hold over us. And Paul says Christ comes to break the chain. Christ comes to set us free. To give us freedom. To know life. And this freedom... You know, some people have taken this freedom and, and the, the, the power of conquering sin and its power over us. As some people have interpreted that as you, you don't have to struggle with sin anymore. And I don't think that's a biblical concept. I think we're all going to struggle with sin all of our days. He's simply saying in Christ, you don't have to lose every time you struggle with sin. 
We don't live our lives with Christ with this underlying sense of despair. We live our lives with Christ with an underlying sense of hope. I mean, if Christ came and died on the cross just so we could live in mediocrity, really, is that, that's the extent of it. Surely, it's more than that. It is the power to live in the holiness of Christ. It is the ability to live so that we don't have to make bad decisions. We can live in the freedom to make good decisions. It, it's not freedom to, to do unholy things. It's freedom to do holy things. When we talk about holiness, for some of us, that creates images of sternness and strictness and legalism. But that's only because we've skewed it. We've twisted it. Because really, holiness is simply being like Jesus. That's really what it boils down to. It is having the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ. And we don't see anything of sternness and strictness and, and legalism in Jesus. In fact, he comes and that's what he's continually fighting with people. Fighting against that. We're set free not to be legalistic. We're set free to be people of love and mercy and grace and truth and faithfulness and goodness. And all the things that are part of the fruit of the Spirit. That's what we're set free to be. That's why Jesus comes. And it's not for just a select group of people. Sometimes that gets put out there too. If you just know the secret, if you know the code, if you've figured out the mystery, then you get in. When I read this passage from Paul, he's not talking to a select group of people. He's simply, I think he's implying, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then your life is on a trajectory of freedom in Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And I think we've missed that. I think sometimes we we just want to settle For what's easy. We want to settle for hanging on to all of our stuff. And being a a follower of Jesus at the same time. And that's going to lead to disaster. And disappointment. And despair. And so the choice is in front of us continually. We can remain in, in bondage. In slavery. To sin and all of the destruction that it wants to create. Or we can, as he says in verse 13, present ourselves, give ourselves, offer ourselves completely to God. That word to offer, to present, it, it has a kind of a lot of nuances to the meaning. But one of them is that you put yourself at the disposal of another person. You simply say, here it is. Here I am. And if you tell me to go right, I'll go right. You tell me to go left, I'll go left. You tell me to jump, I'll jump. You tell me to lay on the floor, I'll lay on the floor. We put ourselves at the disposal of this other person. And that feels frightening to us. That's a risk. And that's where we have to remember, who is it we're putting ourselves, whose disposal are we putting ourselves at? At the one who went to the cross. The one who, while we were yet sinners, died for us. The one who's full of grace. So that anything we give up, Anything we sacrifice, putting ourselves at the disposal of Christ is only putting ourselves at the disposal of the one who loves us with an everlasting love, period. And that choice is continually in front of us. And how our lives proceed are rooted in those choices. A little over a year ago, I started having severe pain in my right arm. 
I had no idea what had happened. I didn't remember injuring it. I was at the doctor. I mentioned it to him. And he did a few tests. He said, it sounds to me like you've injured your rotator cuff. That was odd to me because I think the rotator cuff is in the shoulder, but the pain was in my arm. And he said, well, that's where rotator cuff pain presents itself, in your arm. That's how I know it's your rotator cuff. So I'm like, okay, so what do I do? He said, well, we'll take an x-ray. I don't think it'll show a lot. My guess is, based on the movement you have, you might have a minor tear, and I think physical therapy is your best bet. So I did the x-ray. It proved what he said was right, and so I went to physical therapy. And um, the physical therapist, who will remain unnamed to protect the innocent, was, uh, was helping me a lot. And I was going a couple times a week, and he was working on me. It was very, very painful, and it hurt, but it was, it was making progress. But he also said to me, here, I have some home exercises for you to do, and I want you to do these. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll do them, I'll do them. So, you know, the first week or week and a half, I'm doing the exercises, and then I get tired, and things are getting better. And, you know, I'm thinking, do I really need to do these exercises? If I skip today... That's not a big deal. If I skip a couple of days, not a big deal. I'll be back in there on Tuesday and he can work on my arm and my shoulder and get it all worked out and it'll be better. And so it sort of began to go that route and I began to get better. And so I was doing less physical therapy and I was doing less of my home exercises as well. And last summer, all of that came back on me. And I did something. I don't know what I did, but I injured it and it was in worse shape than I was to begin with. And which was very frustrating because I was out trying to play tennis. You know how embarrassing it is playing tennis and you're serving underhand? It's just horrible. You know, I hated that. You know, and the, the guys on the other team, I mean, they're like, they're being nice to me. But you know, they're over there going, I really want to crush this serve back at you. And I didn't blame them. And, you know, and, and last summer I threw out the first pitch at the Rapids game. They asked me to do that. And I didn't make it to home plate. The ball didn't make it to home plate. And that's the only reason I didn't make it to home plate, I want to tell you. <laughs> Otherwise, it would have been strike right down the middle, right? It was, I was, and I was in so much pain. And quite honestly, one of the worst things was doing the benediction every Sunday. It was so painful doing the benediction. And there were some weeks where I thought, I don't know if I can hold my hands up any longer. And how fast can I say these words? I didn't want to stop doing it because I love doing the benediction. I love looking in your eyes and asking God to bless you. And I didn't want to stop that, but it was so painful. And so I'm back in physical therapy again. And he's working on me again. And he looks at me very gently as he's a gentle person and said, you know, you really need to do those home exercises. Yeah, I know. I will do them. And I did. And I have. What's fascinating is that when I now, when I used to go back to therapy for my treatment, it's like, so how, how are the home treatments going? Oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing so well with those. I'm embarrassed. And, you know, now I go back and I can't wait to tell him how well I'm doing. There's something about doing what I'm supposed to do. But here's the thing. And I'm so much better. I, I'm tons better. I can do the benediction. doesn't hurt a bit. And it's great. And lots of other things. I mean, I, while I couldn't hardly put my arm in the sleeve of a shirt, I'm getting so much better. But in the mornings when I come in from walking and I come into the house and those 20 to 30 minutes of exercises are looking me in the face, I don't want to do them. I would rather not do them. I don't want to go, they hurt. There's a lot of pain involved. It stretches me and it strains me. And I would really rather not do them. And some days I'm just tired. I've got a headache. I just don't want to mess with it. I got other things I want to do. And then I remember what I felt like last summer. And I do them. 
And I think back and I'm thinking, you're an idiot, Wes. You have, you have two choices in front of you. You could, you could either do the exercises and go through that pain, a little bit of pain every day, and get better and have freedom of movement. Or you can be lazy and do the thing that feels like it might be the most enjoyable in that moment and continually have your freedom of movement impinged. I can tell you, not just from theory but experience, the first one is better. And it struck me not too long ago how many times spiritually I'm faced with that same decision. And you're faced with that same decision. We can give up things that seem so important and valuable and find freedom in Christ and the joy of that journey or we can keep holding on to those things keep living life with us at the center and watch our lives just slowly crumble and feel ourselves continually distanced from all that God wants for us. So this morning, that choice is before us. It's not, something, it's not a thing we do one moment and then we're done with it. It's daily. Every day. And we will not always do it right. This is not a word about being perfect. It's about the desire of our hearts. It's about what we want. It's about doing what we know in the moment of surrendering to Christ. And we will not be perfect. But it doesn't mean we aren't giving it our best shot. And we're not working toward surrendering to Christ and finding freedom in Christ. So who do we want to serve? And what do we want the trajectory of our lives to be? Enslavement or freedom? Holy Father, thank you for your grace. That even while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And you died for us to set us free from the clutches and the grip and the destructive power of sin. Father, this day, tomorrow, this week, whatever you're putting your finger on, in our lives. Help us to see that we might let go. Die to sin about one more thing. And live in your freedom. Through Christ we pray. Amen.
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.